welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. Hi, I am Jessie Sheehan, and I have written a cookbook called The Vintage Baker that I am very, very excited to talk to Susie about. Your vintage baking booklet collection inspired you as you researched and wrote this cookbook. Tell us a little bit about your collection. Sure. So um, it was, uh, you know, over 10 years ago that I first kind of discovered these booklets. I'm actually a former lawyer, which I kind of try to keep a secret, but I'm just going to come right out and tell everyone right now. And I was on sort of this extended, I joke, this extended maternity leave, um, whereby I had left to have one child and then I left to have another child and then I never went back. So I sort of had my kid um, left my law firm and, and sort of never returned. And after my second child was about a year old, I was sort of, I loved being at home with my kids, but I also didn't love being at home with my kids and sort of wanted to find something, um, to do that was, that would take me outside of the home. And I didn't want to go back to being a lawyer. And I had started working as a junior baker in a bakery in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where I live called Baked. And, um, I had sort of just walked in the door and said, you know, please hire me. I don't really know anything, but I will be a hard worker and I really want to learn what you guys are doing here. And they, of course, like looked at me like I was a crazy person because what kind of mom does that? Um, or, 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 um, person of a mom's age does that. But long story short, they took me in sort of as an intern. I started baking with them and it was around that same time that I was with, you know, one of my kids was, was, um, I don't know, in an art class somewhere. And I was strolling around Cobble Hill with another one of my kids and stumbled or Carol Gardens and stumbled upon this junk shop that had all these amazing booklets in this kind of barrel, or not barrel, but basket on the, on the floor of the shop. And I kind of zoomed in with the stroller and grabbed a bunch of them. They have these incredible covers with cakes on them and ice cream and candy. And these, the illustrations, um, are just so whimsical and at least for me, um, very kind of provocative and exciting. And I grabbed a bunch of these booklets and took them home and the rest was kind of history. I started working with, um, the booklets just at home, making things from them, um, being inspired by them while still working at baked and sort of learning the craft of, um, baking, as it were. Um, the booklets are sort of special. The, the recipes tend to be a little, um, they're not the most, uh, it's funny, I was just listening to your podcast with a woman from Betty Crocker and that yes. new cookbook, and she was talking about how you really have to change the flavors of these old recipes for our 21st century palate. And that is absolutely true. What I would find, what I loved about the recipes is they're foolproof. They've been tested. They really are tried and true. But they may not have the kind of pizzazz that you want them to have. So so I think she mentioned this, and I'll mention this, like almost no recipes call for salt. She mentioned things being too salty. I actually never found anything to be too salty, although she was talking about savory and I'm talking about sweet. But, you know, 90% of the recipes don't even call for a little bit of salt. Salt, as we all know, a little bit of, well, not, not that we all know, but a little bit of salt will help bring out other flavors. So you kind of need salt not to make something salty, but to make something flavorful in general. So things like that, or even vanilla, you know, maybe they would call for a teeny bit of vanilla or none, whereas so many baking recipes today obviously call for that or some kind of flavoring like that. And just having fun with the booklets at home, making the recipes and then thinking about like, well, that's good, but not great. How can I make it better? 
that was sort of what got me started, um, you know, playing around with them. And it and it baked at the bakery where I was learning my craft, as it were. Um, their their style is very like Americana and old school and big billowy cakes and big chunky cookies and cupcakes and and scones and you know um, sticky buns and coffee cake and all of that. Those are all recipes you're going to find in these booklets. Um, so the it was sort of this this kind of perfect storm of finding the booklets, beginning to be a baker at Baked, and then the journey that that took me on to where I was able to, you know, pitch this idea to, um, I wrote a book called Icebox Cakes before I wrote this book, and I was able to pitch this idea about booklets to my editor who worked with me on Icebox Cakes, and she loved it. So it was sort of, that's maybe too long-winded an answer, but that's sort of how the booklets (laughs) came to be part of a book. (laughs) It's never too long-winded. Okay, Um, good. (laughs) So what years were these booklets put out and who put them out? Sure. So they, they ranged, um, or they, at least the ones in my cookbook, um, the ones that I'm using are from the late 19th century, like the 1890s through, I think I have a McCall's, um, booklet in there, um, from the 1970s. Um, but I would say mostly the heyday of the booklets would be like the twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties. And essentially ingredient companies like Domino Sugar or Swansdown Cake Flour or appliance companies like Frigidaire, um, would distribute these booklets, uh, when a customer bought a bag of sugar or bought a refrigerator. And the booklets called for the ingredient or the appliance being purchased in all of the recipes. So obviously it was a Frigidaire book. Every single thing was going to be something that you needed to make cold, whether it was ice cream or some kind of pie. And then if it was you know, Swansdown cake flour, everything in there calls for Swansdown cake flour. Um, and the booklets um, were a, an amazing advertising tool. They, um, you know, encouraged the women to use the product. Um, they, uh, depending on the era in which the booklet was published, kind of the message to the to the um, homemaker, as it were, would, would differ. For instance, you know, during the Depression, the message would be, let's talk about how frugal you can be. You cannot use our product and you can make these things and you're going to save money. Um, in the 20s, earlier on, there was a, um, I forget the exact date, but there was a pure food health law passed. I'm bastardizing the name, but something like that. And during that period of time, all the recipes were supposed to be good for you. So it would be like, you must buy this kind of Knox gelatin because it's going to make sure that you never get a cold or that you have strong bones or whatever it is. Then in the 1950s, which I just love, it was all about... Um, I mean, very sexist, but I love it anyway, just all about the glamour um, associated with cooking. So suddenly cooking went, went, you know, maybe from something that, you you know, your your chubby granny was doing with an apron on, like to be frugal in the 20s. Now the pictures were all showing these glamorous, gorgeous women, you know, stirring up a souffle and how excited your husband's going to be when he gets home and there's a souffle on the table. So the, 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 the booklets were just this amazing advertising tool, and for the collector today, just this amazing sort of look into um, sort of Americana and history and also food history, and they sort of, they offer so much, as well as just something that I love about them, which is just these, like, amazingly yummy, unusual recipes. Um, when I was picking recipes for the book, what I tried to do is, um, you know, sometimes I was just picking things that I just love. Like, of course, I'm going to have chocolate cake because with like a, you know, seven minute frosting because I love that. But I also tried to pick things, the, the booklets. 
and it wasn't the booklets, it was the time period, had the, they were just the most wonderful names for, for, for different treats. For instance, like the, the seafoam, the um, seven-minute frosting in my book is made with brown sugar and called seafoam frosting because that's what it was called back in the day, and I just adore that. Or, or fig newtons were called fig pincushions. Um, uh, or, you know, uh, almond cookies that kind of looked like a sand dollar. You kind of place three small, um, slivered almonds on the top of the, on the top of the cookie. Those are called, um, sand tarts. So I was just in love with the names and so chose some recipes in the book because of the names that they were given in the booklets and some because I love them and some because they were just so ubiquitous and it, you just felt like I, I can't really write a cookbook based on these booklets unless I put in a coffee cake because every booklet has a coffee cake. Speaking of names, I never knew sticky buns had so many derivations like Oh, I know. It's so that's that's a great one. So though, so in my book, they're called pecan curls because that's what they were called. But yes, they had like a variety of different names, and it's just again, it's just so. I, I found that really fun and and special just to see how creative and different um, um, what what you know the the staples not staples but the things that we love to eat these baked goods that we love to eat all these like the derivations of their different names. And they were called curly cues. Isn't that cute? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It makes so much sense, right? Because that's the shape. Totally. We just call them buns. But really, there should be some reference to the, cur- to the way you make the dough and how you roll up the log. And, you know, it is a curly cue. Yeah, they're so not a bun. <laughs> I know, right? It's true. <laughs> it's true. When did you realize that you had a passion for recipe development? Oh, good question. Um, I would say what, what was sort of... Um, uh, what the what 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 purchasing all those booklets early on brought me was not only um, this kind of exciting connection between the 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 more modern version of these old school desserts that I was learning to make it baked, but also my own efforts at home to kind of twist and tweak the recipes myself. And I almost feel like doing that at home. Uh, encouraged me to think about development of in, in a whole different way. It hadn't even really. Uh, I was so. I was so um, uh, committed to just learning how to do things. I'm a, I'm a rule follower, and I kind of, which is probably why I like to bake. I, I don't I don't mind if you don't have to. You know, I don't. I'm I'm not one of those people that always want to shake it up and put my own label on it. Like I'm like, what? Here's the recipe. I'm going to follow it. Um, but anyway, um, working at home with the booklets definitely inspired me to kind of play around a bit more. And then what was amazing about the opportunities that I ended up having it baked at the bakery is that um, Matt and Nada, who own the bakery and are the founders, um, began writing their own cookbooks and they needed a home baker to test their recipes because they wanted to make sure the recipes worked in a home kitchen. And everyone I worked with was a true on professional, you know, who'd gone to cooking school. So I was sort of a perfect person to test the recipes. Um, And then from testing, I started developing recipes for their books. So definitely it was my work with them and the bakery that kind of gave me my first opportunities to do so. But that was sort of coupled with my own kind of experimentation at home. I love that you referenced the 1942 booklet, My Bananas, How to Serve Them, (laughs) (laughs) on the Chai Banana Fritter page. In that booklet, it recommends serving banana fritters for dinner with roast beef and cauliflower. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. I mean, that was. 
Yeah, that was really fun, too. I didn't spend, it's funny, There, I definitely, like, sort of brought that up in that head note to that recipe, but, I mean, there was crazy things they wanted you to do with some of these sweets, and, I mean, particularly the Jello booklets. I had this amazing recipe that was, that was actually cut, you know, you just, by the time it, it's time to put the whole book together. Often you have to cut a few recipes to make everything fit once, you know, design gets involved in how it's going to look. But I had a recipe for whipped jello, which is actually this amazing concoction of jello that you end up before it's really hard. It's like just starting to kind of set up. You add a lot of whipped cream to it and whip it up. And it's like almost like this delicious fruity mousse. Um, and I fell in love with the name Whip Jello. I saw it everywhere. I have a lot of Jello booklets, and so I saw it in all of my booklets. And I was like, "This is absolutely going in my book." And then I did like my twist and tweak for that recipe because all the recipes in the book are, you know, I say I twisted and tweaked them for the 21st century baker. Um, the twist and tweak was that you just make the jello from scratch. You just are buying gelatin. And I had a, the, the recipe was a passion fruit um, whipped jello. And you bought, you know, passion fruit juice and, 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 and gelatin. And it was this amazingly light, fruity deliciousness. Um, but uh, I forgot why I went. Oh, I know why I went on that tangent. Um, but the jello booklets are an amazing example of, of things like this banana booklet where you're like, huh? You want me to serve jello with what? You know, <laughs> we think of jello as like a sweet thing that maybe we had for dessert in elementary school at the, you know, in, in school lunch. Do you know what I mean? Not like yeah. something that you're serving um, as a main course, as it were. Um, and the jello booklets are just to not go off on a little riff on them are just like some of the most extraordinary, like there's a one, there's one maybe from the 1920s, which is literally like a story. Like on the first page, a, a, a woman marries her, her young husband and is very fearful about the first meal she's going to make for her in-laws. And, but Jello saves the day because she makes them Jello. And then her husband calls her at six o'clock PM and says, I'm bringing folks home from the office. Is that okay? And she panics, but then she makes them Jello. And it literally <laughs> takes you through the milestones of this woman's life, you know, dinner party with with the husband's friends from work, the in-laws, the baby comes, uh, the baby's first birthday, you know, all the way up until she's having like tea and she's a granny and every occasion is marked with jello. And I just think that is like beyond amazing. I love that booklet so much. Here's a clever piece of vintage advice. For even browning and less browning, bake your cookies on the backside of a rimmed baking sheet. Why is this? Oh, the idea is um, for the um, uh, it it it's it's better. Um, what do you, what do they call it? Like almost like ventilation for the cookies as they bake. They're not being sort of encumbered by any little um, uh, 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 the little walls of the sheet. And if they're baked up a little bit higher, with the heat being able to go up underneath the pan, as it were, it just makes for this you know terribly crispy, delicious, lee um, baked or perfectly baked, shall we say, um, cookie. It was, it was, uh, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the advice you could get from the booklet. It's funny when I first started writing the book, I thought that was going to be when you write a cookbook 
and you've you know how you have a proposal and you you you're trying to get you know an editor or a publisher to 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 to, to buy your idea essentially um you know you try to ha- they call you they want you to have a hook you know what's the what's the you couldn't just say like oh I want I have these booklets I'm going to write recipes from them that's not enough and at first I thought my hook was going to be all the advice from the booklets um in the end it seemed like either a combo of other people putting sort of old school advice in books or just not really I wasn't really sure it would be robust enough, like that I would come up with enough advice to really make that sort of what kind of, um, uh, you know, moved the book forward, as it were. But I still held on to the idea, uh, or and my editor did, of just putting one little piece of advice before each chapter. You have included a darling pamphlet inside the cookbook. Tell us about Aww. that. Sure. Well, I wish I could take credit for it, but really that was Chronicle Books is my publisher and they're amazing and they make the most beautiful books. And it was their idea. Um, I don't know if it was my editor, um, her with her colleagues discussing the book, um, but it 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 literally for those that don't know about these little booklets, they, they you know, I don't know, they're four by six. I mean, they vary in size, but they're pretty tiny. Um, they're, they're made of paper. There's, there's no cardboard or, you know, they're stapled. And, um, what Chronicle has done is, has placed a little tiny kind of faux book into the pages of the cookbook. What is sort of, um, both cool and made writing the book or designing the book somewhat difficult is that, so, for instance, in this booklet, all of the recipes are pre-1923 recipes and therefore are not copyrighted. So what we put in the booklet, which is sort of amazing, I think it's at least 20, if not more, recipes, original recipes. So you can sort of go look at my butterscotch pecan curl recipe and then look in the booklet to see what an original sticky bun recipe would have looked like. Same thing with the sand tarts, the almond cookie. Um, I think I put the chocolate cake in there. So what's nice about the booklet is you can see the original and then you can see what I did. And not every recipe in the tiny booklet is the one that I used um, to create the recipe in my book, but you, you get a sense of what an early recipe for one of these items would have looked like. The issue is this, um, post-1923, all of the, all of the artwork and all of the recipes are copyrighted. Now, I didn't need recipes for my book because I was creating my own, but I definitely needed to use the artwork from from the booklets to really make the book special. And back to this idea of finding your hook when you're when you're trying to come up with a book proposal, um, the hook was going to be that I was going to have original art from the booklets contrasting with more modern art by a you know a contemporary photographer. Um, so that was part of the process of writing this book and, and a, and a, and a um, laborious part of the process was contacting all of the companies and trying to track down who owned the booklets and who owned or who owned the copyrights to these booklets now. Oh, my um, gosh. And, yeah, that was – I cannot – and I, I, uh, I love Chronicle, but they did not offer to help me with that. <laughs> so that was just what – that was my job. <laughs> and, um, and it was really hard. Um, you know, some of them like Kraft – actually now owns all, like, so, so, so many of my booklets or owns the copyright to them because Kraft folded in General Foods and all of these other big, big companies that had produced so many of the booklets that I was interested in. And, you know, right before my manuscript was due, Kraft said, yep, you can use our booklets. And that was an incredible coup. 
Because early on in the writing process, most of the art was pre-1923 because it was the only art that I knew I could use without permission. Um, so I was so excited to be able to use art from all of the different decades so that it didn't seem like, okay, this is really cool. She has, you know, this is all recipes from, you know, before um, before the 1920s. Um, but anyway, the booklet is super special and sweet and cute and can be used. I mean, you could try to make recipes from it if you so desired. Um, but it's just a nice contrast to the to the revamped recipes throughout the book, as well as just the they use the kind of old-fashioned font in it and then the pictures, and it just gives a real sense of, of what an early book looked like. Now, how has Bonnie Slotnick of Bonnie Slotnick Cookbooks here in New York City helped you add to your recipe booklet collection? Oh my gosh, how has she not helped me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's incredible. So um, I kind of knew Bonnie a little bit anyway. I'd certainly been to her shop before I started writing this book, but at least it would have been three years ago, 2015, when I when I when my book Icebox Cakes came out. Um, I started going to her shop and and really kind of embellishing or 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 embo- like I, I started buying a lot more booklets. I had a few. I had some from when I had. Um, um, found them in that shop with my son all those years ago, and I had certainly been collecting them over the years since then. But once I really got this idea to write the book, I, I, I um, ended up uh, purchasing more books from her, and she is such an extraordinary human being, and she lent me many of her booklets. So ones that I didn't have that maybe are impossible to find at this point, she let me use. So I was able to photograph them as well as use recipes from them. And that was huge, huge, huge. And she's just an incredible resource. She knows so much um, about food history. She loves the booklets. Um, that's why she has this vast collection in her apartment. We had this really fun day. She joked. It was like we were playing with Barbies, except we were playing with booklets. And like I came over and we sat on the floor and looked through her booklets and she let me borrow as many as I wanted, which was incredible. And I hope to do something in her shop in the fall, um, a little book signing and chat. And she's so knowledgeable. So um, she could probably, she'll be teaching me and talking to everyone and I'll be listening. Um, but, uh, she's amazing. I live for a good icebox cake. So I made your recipe for coconut chocolate icebox cake with toasted almonds on page 131. That definitely Yay. took me back. First off, Aww. describe what an icebox cake is. Oh, sure. So an icebox cake is a cake that, um, consists of layers of usually cookies and whipped cream, but it could be ladyfingers and pudding, or it could be graham crackers and pudding. Um, And you layer these items in a dish and then place the dish in the refrigerator to set up as opposed to inside the oven. And what happens in the refrigerator over a, let's say, eight to 16-hour period of time is that the um, the cookie or the graham cracker or the ladyfinger absorbs, I call it the cakey component, absorbs the, um, the whipped cream or the pudding. And so what happens is the whole cake is transformed into this very creamy, still with some texture from that cakey component, but it's not, it's not crisp anymore. Um, it's, it's soft. Um, is, is transformed into this sort of like soft, delightful, creamy, yet slightly um, 
uh, I wouldn't say crunchy, but, 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 you know, you, you know, you're it, it's almost like cake, literally, like you can imagine, you know, what it feels like to put your fork into a slice of really yummy chocolate devil's food cake. The, those chocolate cookies, when they're, when they've absorbed the whipped cream become cake-like. Um, and I think they are, I mean, obviously, since I co-wrote a book about them, I, I adore them and always have. I didn't grow up in a house where anyone was making icebox cakes, um, so I can't even really recall when I had my first one. But once I figured out that that was like an option and this was something you could like make on the regular because they're incredibly easy, I was all over it. And the book that I wrote is all about using um, – uh, homemade ingredients. So you make your own cookies, you make your own graham crackers, you make your own ladyfingers, pudding, whipped cream, um, as well as other kind of interesting components like a layer of caramel or a layer of ganache. Um, so, so the book kind of, I guess, requires a lot of the reader, although I hope that people get it that you can always substitute you know, store-bought lemon cookie. You don't have to make your own lemon cookie or store-bought ladyfinger or even jello pudding. You know, make your make a pudding out of a box if you don't want to do it on the stovetop. Um, so I, I hope the book will have some legs for people that are like, hmm, that sounds yummy, but I don't think I want to do all that work. Um, I hope people will understand that when using that book, they, they can, they can um, uh, uh, use, use things they find in the grocery store. And so when I wrote The Vintage Baker, I was very kind of conscious of that. I love icebox cakes, so I put two recipes for icebox cakes. I have a vanilla rhubarb icebox cake, and then I have the coconut chocolate one you mentioned. I made sure that they... They, yeah, they took a little bit of work. The vanilla rhubarb—you you make a rhubarb compote on the on the on the stovetop, or the coconut almond icebox cake. You make sort of this really fun coconut whipped cream from a from a can of coconut milk combined with some heavy cream. There's a little bit of of actual you know uh, not actual work. There's a little there's a little bit de- there's a DIY aspect to it, but you're you're not. I'm not asking you to make any cookies. I'm asking you to buy some chocolate cookies for the coconut chocolate cake, and I'm asking you to buy some vanilla wafers for the vanilla rhubarb cake. And I just think that makes it more accessible for people. I think people hear icebox cakes, and they think that's that's going to be something kind of easy that I throw together and stick in the fridge. And that's what I wanted it to be in this particular book. I'm so glad that you made that recipe. Again, back to my, um, I, you know, I, I, I have a lot of anxiety about putting this book out in the world. I'm very excited, but I'm also nervous because it's like, it's funny. I was just listening to Deb Perlman, who is a friend of mine and someone I've worked with. I was listening to her on Serious Eats and she was, you know, this is Deb Perlman, like, you know, the incredible blogger and cookbook writer and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, talking about the fear of her, like when her second book came out, like not sure, you know, it would have legs or what, or what would happen to it. Um, I'm not, I'm not in any way comparing myself to Deb only in that I feel the same way, that same sense of anxiety, like rather than be like confident, like, yeah, my book is great. I love all my recipes. Can't wait to share them. I'm like the opposite. Like, oh my God, Susie's making the coconut cake. <laughs> what if she doesn't like it? What if it doesn't work? So I, I gotta, I gotta work on my confidence a little bit here. But the thing that's fun about this cake and that I'm, I want to talk to you about, because I'm hoping it worked out for you, is it does, as I mentioned before, it requires you to take these cans of coconut milk Put them in the refrigerator turn until the fat. Yeah, the, you turn them over. Um, the the fat hardens, 
ideally. And in 24 hours, you take the cans out, you open them, you scrape out the fat, you put the watery milk sort of to the side, use it for another purpose, and then that's what you whip. I call for whipping it along with some heavy cream. It just makes it a little more stable. But when I, one of my, the first tester of this recipe tested it, fine, loved it, everything was perfect. Second tester, she got bum cans of coconut milk. And despite the fact she'd left them in the, in the refrigerator for a day, um, when she opened them, it was all water. Oh. And she tried to make it any, I mean, oh, I won't even bore you with the details. But that's why I have like a little note in the recipe, like when you're in the grocery store, please pick up the can of coconut milk and just shake it slightly. You, you need to hear something that sounds slightly solid to begin with. Because if it's all watery when you get it at the grocery store, it ain't going to change once it hits your refrigerator. But talk to me, Susie, did you have any problems with that? No, well, with the coconut milk, no. But yeah. with, with oh, layering good. the uh, chocolate uh, wafers, I didn't know whether, like, how to put the wafers on the edge. You know, you could put, like, a full wafer down the middle, and then do you crack it in half and put it down the edges? Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, what I wrote is um, you cover as much of the cream as possible with a layer of wafers, filling any gaps with broken wafers to create a solid layer. Okay. Yeah. That was my own. So that's thing. exactly. No, it was yeah. it was amazing. And if you love coconut, Aww. you're going to love this. Yeah. So where can we find you on the web and social media? Yes, great question. So on the web, I am at Jesse Sheehan Bakes. Jesse is J-E-S-S-I-E. Sheehan is S-H-E-E-H-A-N. And then the word bakes. That's my website where I have um, my blog and information about events that I'm doing and uh, articles that I've written and the whole nine. And then on Instagram, I'm at Jesse Sheehan Bakes. Same thing. And same thing on Facebook. And I have a Facebook page. And uh, same thing. I think Twitter is Jesse S. Bakes. Great. Thanks, Jesse, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. You're so welcome, Susie. I loved chatting with you. Follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book. Twitter is I am Susie Chase. And download your kitchen mixtapes, music to cook by, on Spotify at Cookery by the Book. And as always, subscribe in Apple Podcasts. Thank you.